Previously on Storyological. <laughs> All right. Okay. <clears throat> um. <laughs> You're gonna give me some blue steel, some brown steel, some rusty pipe. That's what you got. That sounds like porn. <laughs> you, what you've got there, sir, is a rusty pipe. I believe what you need is blue steel. Oh, what do you do when you have rust? You scour it. You really, you're really not getting into the spirit of this porn. So, what what have we done in the last six months that we should tell our listeners about? Uh, one, I guess we should tell them we've invented a kind of new time dilation machine, such that what seemed to them to be about six weeks was actually for us six months. <laughs> um. That took some doing. That took some doing. That took up a good two weeks was the invention of that machine. This is Storylogical, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. My pick for this week is Sleep It Off Lady by Jean Reese. Uh, the story follows Miss Verney, who is an older lady who lives on her own at the edge of the village. And one day she decides that she wants to get rid of the old shed by her house. But dum 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 it's not really that drama i don't know why <laughs> but it explodes in a giant no no but, but but she can't find anyone to take it down and she tries one builder she tries another builder and this shed comes to symbolize a kind of her loss of power and status as an older person in her in our society and not only can she then not get anyone to take it down but she starts to see or imagine that she's seeing a giant rat that lives there and this rat both grows in size and grows in her imagination to kind of dominate her whole existence and I really I was very touched by this story partly because I just I'm always excited by stories with older people and people yeah. who are kind of at the end of their days Emma is into old women it's in true. particular old powerless frustrated <laughs> um lost in their own symbologicalness yeah lost in their own symbology sure yeah it's true that's i'm just i'm just waiting for the moment where i can wear wrinkly tights and shout at people in the street and wave my walking stick uh-huh do you you follow the murder she wrote fashion instagram yeah, i presume sure by do. Our friend murder Joe. she wore yeah so yes Stories about older people who are wrestling both with their position in society and how it has changed over time and also with what comes next and the different ways that we we contemplate the end and how it will come and how we prepare or don't prepare ourselves for it. Hmm. Um, the first two words that popped in my mind as I was nearing the end of the story, genteel horror. We talked about cozy mysteries a while back, you know, the idea that something scary seems to be happening and then you investigate it and it kind of scooby-doos the end and it turns out it's just some old white man causing trouble. This, this story exists in what, I, what I've decided to call genteel horror and it's kind of the reverse in that it begins with tea and then just inches further, further into darkness. Or at least that's the way I felt it at first. Her language is quite elegant and quite beautiful. And the, the horror, the fear that this old woman has about death and loss of power kind of overtakes you. But then I realized it's not so much like dipping your toe in hot water, you know, and then dipping your ankle and slowly getting into the hot. The story begins with 
One October afternoon, Mrs. Baker was having tea with Miss Fernie and talking about the proposed broiler factory in the middle of the village where they both lived. Miss Fernie, who had not been listening attentively, said, You know, Letty, I've been thinking a great deal about death lately. <laughs> I hardly ever do, strangely enough. So then I realized, oh, no, 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 we're not inching into it. No, we, we are the lobster that's just been plunged straight into the pot that's already set to boil. It's just that she turned the boil up slowly. So eventually, you know, it will be too hot and too late, and we're all going to be very dead. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I like that. It's the, that phrase, that sentence that she says to this lady who's supposedly her friend, you know, I've been thinking a lot about death lately. I don't know if it's an understatement at that point in the story, but certainly what we understand as the story progresses is how it obsesses her. And my, what I, one of the things that I really enjoyed about how she put that across is she never, apart from that initial statement, she never says outright about what is, you know, she's becoming obsessed with death or she's afraid of what's happening. But you see it, we're so deeply inside of... Um, Miss Verney's point of view that as her decline speeds up, we understand we understand it through like the way she describes her neighbor Tom, and Tom goes from having these warm, kind, round brown eyes as he offers to help her by putting poison down for the rat, through to a few paragraphs or maybe it's pages later on. Um, she you know, he asks her how she's doing, he hasn't seen her about, and suddenly she's filled with the idea that he is being mean to her, and she sees malevolence everywhere. And so that transition, I think, is a wonderful kind of indication of her changing mental state. Yeah, something that fascinated me in the story was thinking about pivots. There you're talking about, like, she pivots from seeing Tom one way to seeing him another way. Uh, pivot is just a fancy word for change. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm using it for a reason, which is like in that, in that first exchange where she tells Mrs. Baker, I've been thinking about death, which I don't do strangely enough. I love the pivot that Mrs. Baker does. It's a particularly British pivot. Mm. And that Miss Fernie has given her two choices, two sentences to which to respond. One, I've been thinking about death a lot, and I hardly ever do. That's strange. And Mrs. Baker, of course, does not choose to talk about death. <laughs> no, she, she pivots to, oh, no, I don't think it's strange. And then she starts talking about something else completely. And we've, we've gone away from death. And that, to me, is the mark of the story. You describe the shed as being her inability to deal with the shed as a kind of symbol of her growing powerlessness. And for me, I read through that symbol of powerlessness more to a sense of it, it was a way for her to take control, that throughout the story... We begin with death. We begin with Miss Verney thinking about death, but then she's thinking about the shed. And mm-hmm. then she can't do anything with the shed. And so then she's thinking about the rat. Mm-hmm. And then she can't do anything about the rat. And she's thinking about what a menace Tom is. She keeps mm. and then turning. She focuses on the rubbish. Yeah, right. And then she focuses on the rubbish. She keeps turning, turning further away. So I loved how, you know, earlier I mentioned old women getting lost in their symbology. I love what Jean's doing here with creating this symbology like we could read any of these symbols as a symbol of death but the importance is not that the symbols are there the importance is is in the fact that miss fernie is is she's pivoting through all of these symbols trying to find something that she can have control Mm. over you know what i just realized as you were talking slight digression yeah is that when we make t-shirts for storyological we should have one that says lost in your symbology 
Yeah, right. It's romantic. It's, right. It could be anything. It could be so many things. Yeah. I love that. That's another T-shirt we can make. <laughs> it could be anything. <laughs> well, which takes me on to one of the other things that I really enjoyed contemplating about the story, which is the last line. So, unsurprisingly, it ends with uh, Miss Verney, or it doesn't end with Miss Verney dying, but Miss Verney dies, and it ends with a concluding scene where the doctor is talking to the neighbors. And he says that she dies of a heart condition, very widespread now, a heart condition. And that is the final thing. And there is so many different ways or diff- that you can take that and different ideas contained in it. Like, is it a euphemism for drunkenness? You know, she talks a few times during the, uh, during the story about needing to drink. And the, the kind of the climactic scene is where Dina, a local girl, won't help her because Dina's mom says that Miss Verney is a drunk and she says she should sleep it off. Um, Or is it also somehow like an indication just of the human condition? That's the other way I took it. Like to be human is to have a, be in some, have your heart in some condition, right? You're always in some state of pain or euphoria or some combination of the two. Yeah. I think my, third choice which is often my choice like i'm very interested very interested in the third way oh yeah there should always be a third way so yeah i'm always interested in the third way no the um, the idea of running the idea of cowardice the idea of escape the idea of retreat we're going to talk about it in the next story mm. uh for this week as well that you know that turn where she sees tom as a menace mm. that is matched at a moment of the story where she stopped going on walks and now she doesn't want to talk to tom And she thinks about the girl Dina, who she also has never really talked to, presumably because Dina thinks bad thoughts about her. Um, So the story turns from where at first she's having a nice conversation with Mrs. Betty about tea. And -hmm. then she's talking to Tom. She isolates herself more and more. And that is more of what that line resonates for me at the end. The heart condition. Yes, it could be widespread, but it's the condition of the heart where it retreats where it goes into yeah. hiding. And that to me fits in with this idea of, of avoiding death because when I first read the story, well, I liked it well enough, but uh, one of our friends mentioned Flannery O'Connor when I read the first line of the story and how much it reminded her of Flannery O'Connor. And I thought, yes, you're right. There's that gentility, there's that elegance of language, and then there is also the fascination with death and the grotesque. But in this story, it felt like the grotesque you know, it was kind of, you know, it's not quite as on the surface and if, as in a Flannery O'Connor story. This story actually is gentle for the most part on its surface, even though it's getting at something of true horror that only kind of peeks its head at the end uh, with her death. But I realized what I love, that thing that overtakes her at the end where she's alone and Dina won't help her and she has a bit of something on her knee and she's afraid the rat is going to get her. It made me think of Voldemort, uh, really, (laughs) because I was thinking about the shed, the rat. There was a moment where she says, I'm not sure where this phrase comes from, but she says, uh, Shredni Vashtar, to the darkness, like almost like she's summoning some Mm. evil and it makes her really scared. And so what made me think of Voldemort is the way that our our defenses against death, our defenses against fear, the symbols we build to protect us, the rules we build to protect us end up overwhelming us and isolating us. And that, 
you know, to be very literary, you know, that to me is like the true death at the end. Not that she mm-hmm. physically dies, but that spiritually right. she has lost. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. So I'm interested in what you said about the grotesquery being under the surface and relating that to what we've talked about, how British society can be very stifling and make you feel like you're not allowed to express your emotions or your fears or your hopes. And how Jean Rhys uh, was Dominican and but moved to Britain. And I read the introduction from her editor to this short story collection. Um, always felt like she didn't fit in, she wasn't good enough, she didn't have the kind of um, background or reputation that she was supposed to have in order to be part of society. And I could almost, I could kind of feel that rage and and lack of, you know, not wanting to fit in, but also wanting to in in the isolation and the way that she pulls away and finally says, fine, whatever, I know what you guys think of me already. And we see that through what Dina says to her. But when she finally gives in and gives up, it's like, it's like, damn it, that terrible cultural stiflingness has won. My pick for this week is Agatha's, let's go with that, Agatha's Machine. It was written by Camilla Gradova. I found it in the White Review. It is online. You can go to the White Review and read it. The White Review is a literary magazine that started in London, I believe, a few years ago. And it has gotten rave reviews. I feel like you don't often see literary magazines getting rave reviews, but I've seen it mentioned in BuzzFeed and other places. And so this story was a story of wonder and refuse, of escape and imprisonment. It centers on a friendship and a machine. A narrator befriends a girl named Agatha, and she has a machine in her attic, which is not unlike a sewing machine. Uh, except that it doesn't sew anything. It just, you put a piece of the machine next to your head, kind of against your ear, and it stitches together from some part of your subconscious, some part of your being, an image, a fantasy, and it projects it on the wall through something like what would have been called uh, a lantern-y film machine in the <laughs> old days. Oh yeah, one of them. I remember learning about the lantern-y film machines at school. Yeah. Uh, but it's not like that, as we are made to know in the story. It is not like that. Um, and the story follows the cost of these girls, particularly Agatha, their deepening attachment to the these images that have been taken from their mind and projected on a wall. It's told in a style that reminded me of Tim Burton and Terry Gilliam, in particular of Brazil. There is an image in the story of sugar being spun into monstrous shapes. The wall that the images are projected on eventually gets covered in trash, a fridge door, toilet paper, torn pages of books. Agatha's lips, her thin lips, are at one point described as having an expressiveness that reminded the narrator of worms. There is an imagination at work in this story which runs toward the precise and the particular, and I found it to be a seductive mix And I mentioned wonder and refuse, because that imagination to me, it makes wonder of the refuse in the story, and it makes refuse of the wonder, and it's very uh, delightful. It is. Uh, I 
it took me a long time to make my notes on this story because most of the time was taken up by just copying paragraphs out of the story and putting them into my notes and being like, oh, I have to quote that. Copying the next, oh, no, I have to also quote this. No, wait, I actually, okay, well, that's just now, that's three paragraphs continuously. So the the language, it revels in the kind of shame and disgust and excitement that these girls feel, both about their, the, the increasing um, time and obsession that they spend with, with this machine, but also with each other and the narrator's sort of obsessive desire and disgust for Agatha and, and to understand how she lives is really compelling and draws you in. In fact, I'm entertained that you mentioned BuzzFeed in your introduction because one of my notes says this could also have been written as a BuzzFeed listicle or 20 things that disgust and excite me about other people. All right. You have some examples. Well, for instance, I sure do. I've got all these paragraphs that I copied out. Um, so she's describing, the narrator's describing home economics class when they're learning to sew. And sometimes the home ec teacher gets them to mend clothes for her husband. So Agatha pumped out with spiritless speed flat doppelgangers of the teacher's husband, the yellow pads of her tobacco-stained fingertips waltzing across the unclean fabric, which smelled like meat, soup, fruity liquors, and that fried onions and mushroom scent which oozes from the bodies of grown men, as if they were nothing but sacks of unwanted leftovers. And like, I could pretty much feel that sack squelching between my fingers at the end of that paragraph i was just like whoa so nasty uh yeah i I was gonna talk about this fourth i often number my notes uh and note number four is titled sex Mm -hmm. uh so the two images that come out of their minds at the beginning agatha has a puro I'm waiting to see if that is the correct pronunciation. Piero. 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 Uh, who's some kind of dancing clown person. Uh, from the narrator, what do we get? Some kind of angel man. So there's something, you know, pre-adolescent. They're, they're, you know, there's the cusp of innocence that we're about to go over. And we go over it when, after they've had some of their, as you say, uh, shame and disgust and excitement... We get Mr. Magnolia who shows up, who is old like a father, grabs his crotch, has his mouth open, and his tongue out. Uh, And I love it, uh, because they then try to investigate Mr. Magnolia (laughs) by investigating the name Magnolia, which is the name they gave to him. (laughs) Right. And what comes out of that investigation is the flower shop lady comes out with a damp book to tell them about trees that grow in foreign parts. And then... You know, as you said, the shame and disgust and excitement, there's a, 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 not a few number of times in which fingers are sticky. And one time in particular, mm-hmm. when legs and arms and dress end up covered with sticky jam. And there is, in a way that, yeah, I just really love. I love stories that that are built like this, that are built out of the stuff of dolls and sewing machines and toys and adolescence and that transition from 
wonder and innocence that we perhaps wrongly associate with childhood to then the kind of fantasies that are given birth to when you go through adolescence and all of that wonder and imagination gets turned in the hormones. And this story has an amazing kind of scrim of sex all throughout it. And I don't know what scrim really means. I feel like I made the word up, but I might not have. Um, My note number four, because I also number my notes says wonder arrow titillation and and it is that kind of what starts off as innocent and exciting for them becomes so compelling and so addictive and so kind of physically entangled with each other and also this kind of disgusting mr magnolia who's clearly you know the, the sort of fabulous version of a flasher in the park which is something that happens to a lot of young girls that, you know, horrible grody men hang out in parks and wait for young girls to walk by and then flash them. And it can be terrifying, but it can also be kind of funny and weirdly exciting as well mm. as you like laugh about it with your friends. Like if it's not too close or too scary, it can become this kind of idea of like, maybe it's the first penis you've ever seen. Maybe it's the first time you've ever seen you know a grown man naked and it's kind of horrifying but also this this symbol of like you say turning the cusp you know moving through that cusp and seeking out other people's bodies of your own age or you know for your own pleasure i find it really exciting when i encounter stories that understand how things that are seen as grotesque. Often the grotesquerie is married to a kind of sexuality, a, like a sexiness, that, that there is something there that sometimes when society condemns a certain kind of sexual perversity, I find myself kind of just disappointed in culture, but then I just go read a story like this. And I, I, under no circumstances do I want anybody to think that I think that flashing young girls is a good idea. But I remember in the boarding school <laughs> where I was, um, in the boarding house where I went to school, there was, went through a phase of this man who would call the phone and start to describe his desire to give you a pearl necklace we'd go through a variety of different discussions so because you know people's parents were always calling the, the boarding house phone somebody different would answer each time and you and and he would kind of launch into whatever he was going to say when i heard it i was just kind of like oh, that's weird but it sparked off this this thought process for me i was like well i need to find out what this is i didn't understand what a pearl necklace was and why would he want to give me one so experiencing that was in some way, you know, clearly not a thing that you particularly want to experience. But for me, I processed it by laughing about it with my friends and it became a thing that we bonded over because we had all experienced it. And so we were able to make something good out of what could have been quite a traumatizing event. Yes. Yeah, I think the story understands something you're talking about, which is that you said, I think, in no way do you want to be heard as saying that flashing young girls is good mm. or that calling them on the phone and saying weird things is good. And I think what the story understands is that 
titillation and sexiness and curiosity are not emotions, not feelings bound by ideas of what is good and what is bad. Um, what might be traumatizing for one person might, as you say, be constructed into a story with their friends that becomes a fantasy in their life because for however for whatever reason they survived or they were not traumatized by it i think i think one of the differences is is whether or not you feel like you had enough power in the situation or enough power leaving the situation to, to then make something out of it and and the reason why i say the story knows is because you see what i'm doing i'm now i'm now segueing into note number 2 mm-hmm. is that you know the story is interested in fantasy as an escape and fantasy as an imprisonment. And it reminded mm-hmm. me it reminded me of an essay that Michael Shaban wrote, I don't know, fifteen years ago, called Solitude and the Fortresses of Youth. Uh, he wrote it about a student that had been expelled from school, a university, for having written a story in which there was a lot of violence, a lot of things that were bad, a lot of things that were not good, and it was seen as a sign that he was going to do something that um, a shockingly not unusual number of Americans do, which is to kill a bunch of people. And I want to read a couple of things he said in that essay. Please do. I'll read a couple of paragraphs. Paragraph one. It is in the nature of a teenager to want to destroy. The destructive impulse is universal among children of all ages, rises to a peak of vividness, ingenuity, and fascination in adolescence, and thereafter never entirely goes away. Violence and hatred and the fear of our own inability to control them and ourselves are a fundamental part of our birthright, along with altruism, creativity, tenderness, pity, and love. Paragraph two. The imagination of teenagers is often... I'm tempted to say, always, the only sure capital they possess apart from the love of their parents, which is a force far beyond their capacity to comprehend or control. During my own adolescence, my imagination, the kingdom inside my own skull, was my sole source of refuge, my fortress of solitude, at times my prison. But a fortress requires a constant line of supply. Those who take refuge in attics and cellars require the unceasing aid of confederates. Prisoners need advocates, escape plans, or simply a window that gives onto the sky. I was reading this story, and the essay kept coming back to me, because, of course, they go up into Agatha's attic for this machine. Agatha is a girl that lives in an impoverished reality, and and for her, she's become entirely indifferent to it. The only thing that exists for her is this window onto the sky, and she invites a confederate. She invites someone in because she needs some kind of fuel, sustenance. She's excited by it. But then once the narrator comes in, once the narrator comes in, they get stuck again. They get mm-hmm. stuck in the attic. They don't seek out new supply. There's only them, and there's only this one image, this one idea that they go over and over again. And I really loved the way the story picked apart their different reactions. The narrator, in seeing these images, decides there must be some basis for this in reality. She wants to find, in the house where Agatha lives, where there are many different families, some marker, some image that corresponds to her dream. But Agatha is totally, totally has faith in the impoverishment of her reality. There's nothing good there. And that plays out in their story, because the narrator, of course, eventually gets to the sticky, addictive place and pulled out by her parents and sent to live with her aunt Mm -hmm. in the exciting city. She gets to really escape 
Her mm-hmm. fantasy and imagination actually remove her from the place of her impoverishment. Whereas Agatha, who does not believe in reality, does not believe in anything, stays in that attic. Yeah. And the fact the fact that we get to see how the narrator escapes and grows up and goes on to live in the city and get married and then returns to see Agatha still stuck there is something that in terms of structure and form, I think is very wonderful about this story. So at the point where the narrator is extracted from this destructive situation, the Camilla knows that she's now pretty much just going to wrap the story up. Okay, but what do we see? We need to know what the consequences of this has been for the two women. Now, we could have consequences in the moment. We could have things about them, you know, and their schooling or their home lives or maybe someone dies. It could happen in those following weeks. But those kinds of stories would have made it a story about Agatha, uh, about not playing with what you don't understand. But because Camilla has chosen to have this long arc and the few paragraphs that we get about the narrator's ongoing PTSD, essentially, with any kind of machinery or apparatus, the way that she grows up, falls in love, has a son, uh, and still continues to struggle with this and then goes back and this is the the perfect point on which to end it goes back to see Agatha is still stuck there and to understand that her storyline is different to Agatha's storyline well that makes it her story makes it much more the narrator's story and understanding that potential need not be wasted and understanding that you don't have to be stuck And the narrator only learns what it is to be stuck at that point where she goes back and sees that Agatha is still there. Yeah. That idea of whose story is it is critical to stories and to how we read them, right? The writer decides, I'm going to write it from this person's point of view. The reader decides how much to trust that point of view. Or in the case of an omniscient narrator or a third-person narrator, they tend subconsciously or not to associate that point of view with one or another character and feels like the story is filtered through their consciousness this story Agatha's machine along with Terry Gilliam and Tim Burton and that editorial that Michael Shaben wrote 15 years ago uh it also made me think of all of those stories told by a narrator that is fixated on one other character And that character tends to be someone marked by magic or mystery or tragedy, usually all three. (laughs) And the one that gets pulled out in Crash Course and in literature over and over again is The Great Gatsby. There's also a story I read recently in The New Yorker, and by recently I mean like a year ago. So just as compared to The Great Gatsby that was published 105,000 years ago. Uh, It was called Zaka the Zulu. And it began with a line that said, He was always a bit of an odd fish, Zaka the Zulu, but he was the last boy any of us expected to be accused of murder. So there you go, mystery, tragedy. And that, I was thinking when I read this story, and thinking just then about how you said it becomes the narrator's story, I was thinking about how to use Gatsby, because it's used a lot because people are aware of its outlines, that of course the story is generally thought as Gatsby's story, But then you will get a teacher who stands up and says, but it's Nick's story. You know, it's our story. It is a story 
that exactly what you said teaches us about the paths that we can take and the paths that Nick takes that are different than Gatsby. And I was struck by this notion that all of our heroes, all of the characters in our stories, however real or impossible, we tend to read them as legends. And that legends, whether they're on maps or in books, they are things we read in the hopes of making sense of the world. The sense that I pulled out of this was the reminder of a quote that I found in Colin Wilson's The Outsider, which is a quote from Steppenwolf. The way to innocence leads ever deeper into human life. Instead of narrowing your world and simplifying your soul, you will have at the last to take the whole world into your soul, cost what it may. And I thought, you know, the narrator may have not known that was the choice that they were making or the choice they were given when they were sent out into the world. But we can see that for Agatha, that was not the choice that she made. Her soul narrowed and narrowed, watching that one image flickering on and on and on until, until it faded into something actually grotesque. Thanks for listening, readers. We probably didn't manage to talk about all the things about these stories or about all the stories that you've loved recently. So if you have any suggestions for things we should have said or stories that we should read... You can always find us on Twitter. We are at Storylogical. Which is story. Like the word. Oh. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. You can follow Chris on Twitter. He is at Kuvols. You can follow Emma on Twitter. She is at E.G. Kosh. You can find and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash storylogical. If you have enjoyed this episode, and we hope you have, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. It helps other people find us, and we love it when that happens. And if you are constitutionally or monarchically or humanly opposed to Apple, that's fine. We're on Google Play. We're on Stitcher. You can go find us there, leave reviews there. And of course... There is the entire apparatus of social media that is slowly dismantling order in the world, which you can use to talk about Storylogical. I thought you were going to say there is the entire apparatus of human interaction where you can tell a real human that you love this podcast. Oh, yeah. I only mention that when we do the pocket interviews where I mention you can tap someone on the shoulder and say, hey, there's this one podcast you might like. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, and of course, for show notes, links to past episodes, gifts of an appropriate and inappropriate nature, uh, you can always find us at our home on the web. Storylogical.com. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. Yeah, we and a fellow cohorts cohorts of our Clarion 2012 class have put together another anthology, The Green Volume. It is a collection of 12 stories, an interview, and an additional point of view scene from Lara Eleanor Donnelly's Not book. Just- not just any old interview. It is a bit of my interview with Sam J. Miller that we did for this podcast, uh, but which we did not put on the web. But now it is tucked inside of the green volume for anybody that's interested. My story that's in the volume is the first story ever published called Monsters and Virgins, which is a kind of mashing together of my love of B 
B-movies and Hollywood pinups and Buffy the Vampire Slayer and involves a boy who feels like a monster and a girl who stabs him repeatedly in the heart. (laughs) And I did the cover art, which features our adorable awkward robot, which is the name for our class. We'll put a link in the show notes. The anthology is available for whatever you want to pay, anything between zero and $10,000. $10,000. Oh That's God, the limit. Can you, you can't give us... You think Gumroad has some kind of warning if you get put in $10,000 that it'll be like, are you sure? <laughs> Maybe. Um, but for $10,000, you'll get those stories, <laughs> you'll get the interview, you'll get endless cover art, and you can know that all of your proceeds are going to the Clarion Foundation, which is what helps put together the workshop and to fund scholarships for those students that can't afford uh their flight their travel their food their time away from their work it really helps keep it open for people from all backgrounds and makes all kinds of meetings across worlds across narratives happen and continues to expand the limits of what is possible (laughs) uh over that's all folks we're done